um, see the conclusion of the chapter. And this is actually a, a continuance of what we saw in Exodus 19. And we saw a picture there of the holiness of God. And uh, if you want to just flip back there to get some context, let's go ahead and go back there. Exodus chapter 19. Verse 1, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they came out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Now this is Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. You remember where Moses was originally called. And Moses went up to God, verse 3, And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, indeed, if you will, excuse me, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Would you mark the word holy there? Because the topic that we're going to talk about tonight is the holiness of God. You will be a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came, verse 7, and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear me or may hear when I speak with you, very key, that they may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border. Of it, whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. 15. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Very key. The people see the presence of the Lord. What accompanies that presence is lightning and thunder, a very powerful demonstration of God's majesty and holiness. And when the people see it, what do they do? They tremble. As we look at the Bible, we see people encounter God time after time in the Old and New Testaments. And when we see this, we see this all over the book of Ezekiel. We see this in Judges with Manoah and his wife. And every time someone sees the glory of the Lord or the presence of the Lord is in their company, you know what they do? They are fearful and they fall on their face. And so... It's interesting to hear some teachers talk about meeting with the Lord. 
Because oftentimes, some false teachers, I'd have to say, have described that God appeared to them in a fireman's suit. And they sat down, and even some of them described counseling the Lord. The Lord was having a bad day, and so I had to kind of cheer him up, you know. But I don't see that in the Bible. What I see is that when God reveals himself in glory, whether it's in the temple, whether it's some special uh, Shekinah appearance of the Lord, people tend to fall on their faces. By the way, they don't fall backwards either in the presence of the Lord and hope for someone to catch them, although that could happen. But they fall on their faces. And uh, as a matter of fact, Manoah and his wife said, we have seen the Lord, we will surely die at the birth of Samson, the announcement of the birth of Samson. So people understand. In the book of Revelation, you remember John says uh, he saw Jesus Revelation 1, 16, 17. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as a dead man. See, these are the descriptions of people who encounter the living God. God is not some old uh, retired gentleman uh, up in yonder heavens with a long white beard, uh, you know, with his legs crossed giving counsel to people. He is utter holiness. He dwells, uh, Timothy tells us, Paul writing to Timothy, in unapproachable light. God is majestic. As a matter of fact, we exhaust English words to try to describe what God is like. We use words that we don't use very often like majestic and awesome and uh, his understanding is inscrutable. There's so many different descriptions of God that really we only tap into when we talk about God. God is unbelievably holy. He's unbelievably powerful. I shouldn't say unbelievably, but incredibly powerful. Saul, when he uh, described the appearance of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he said, suddenly a light flashed around him from heaven. He described it as being midday, but there was a light that shone brighter than the sun in its strength. And he says, when he heard the voice and he saw this spectacle, what did Saul do? He fell to the ground. God is holy. And when the people back in the book of Exodus, see this display of God's power descend on Mount Sinai, you know what they do? There's some fear. There's some definite reverential awe, but it's beyond that. The people are really trembling at this power. They're trembling at the, at the appearance of this God, displaying his majestic power as he comes down in lightning flashes and thunderous noise. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah describes a beautiful scene where he sees the Lord. Isaiah chapter 6. And there's some similar descriptions um, as to what's going on when the Lord is seen. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And as you turn there, I'm just going to pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for the group that's here tonight. Thank you for loving us so incredibly. As holy as you are, as powerful as you are, Yet you love us. What an incredible truth. What a beautiful thing. As Louise saying about a beautiful picture of your love is painted throughout the Bible. And we pray tonight that as we see your majestic holiness, we'd also see your great love for us, the beauty of who you are, the power of who you are, that nothing is comparable to you. No one is like you, O oh Lord. There's nothing that we can compare you to. And we pray tonight that you'll just bless us with the knowledge of who you are and bless us about who we are in Jesus and that we can be holy too because we can become more like you as we submit to you and surrender to you. Help us, Lord, in this category of holiness. We fail so much. 
We feel so inadequate at times. We feel like, man, we, we want to reflect you so much better. So help us, Lord. Help us to see who you are and reflect your glory more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne lofty and exalted. I want you to see some of the phrases that the Bible uses to describe God. He's lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah 6, 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two, excuse me, face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, note that there are three holies there. Sometimes Bible scholars believe that that's a reference to the Trinity, the holy, 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 all three persons of the triune Godhead may be referenced here. But let me ask you a question tonight. When you see the word holy, what, what comes to mind for you? When God is described as holy, now we've, we've heard definitions of holy and we know it means consecrated, we know it can mean something set apart unto God. But God is the definition of holiness. He is the reason things are made holy. And I'm going to give you a series of scriptures in a few minutes that talk about that everything connected to God is holy. Uh, vessels in the temple, ointment or oil, garments, people, callings, scriptures are all described as holy because they are connected to who God is. But God is the definition of holiness. If you want to understand what holiness is, you have to look at God. So we know the definition, I think, pretty comfortably. It means to be set apart or sanctified unto God in terms of vessels or people. But what does it mean when we say God is holy? Have you ever thought about that? What's the definition? What would you give to it tonight? What would you say? Purity. You'd call it love. Perfectness. Being perfection. And I think all of those things tie into that. Uh, one writer put it, it's, it's something that has to do with God being separate from everything else. Because the word holy does mean to separate unto God. But in God's case, it means that he is distinct and far above his creation. If you look at some of the pictures that might give you um, a sense of holiness or awe, you might look at a mountain peak with snow at the top. You might look at uh, the power of the ocean. You might look up on a, a night that's clear and see all the stars. They say with the unaided eye we can see 4,000 stars, but there are uh, millions or perhaps billions of stars in the universe. And when we see things like that, when we see the power of the creative thing, that, that gives us awe, doesn't it? You ever watch a sunset and you watch the sky kind of uh, have these uh, multiple colors and you go, wow. You know, you kind of have one of those moments where, <coughs> you know, look at, you know, sometimes we'll even describe it as a painting. Look at, you know, God's an artist, you know, we'll talk about, about things like that. We'll sit on the ocean. Have you ever just sat on the seashore and just kind of watched wave after wave come in and thought, man, this is beautiful. This is a serene scene. But it reminds me of, you know, the vastness of my God, because I can look out at the ocean as far as my eye can see. But not only is the ocean huge that way, but it's even huge this way in depth. And there's all kinds of sea creatures and multiple life forms. And I look at animals and insects pollinating plants. And, and I look at all of this diversity. And then I think, wait a minute. As much as that um, so, causes awe in me, 
My God is the one responsible for making all of those things. So in one sense, God is separate in the sense of separate from creation. He's eternal. He is the creator. He doesn't have a beginning in the end. So we could talk about his separateness. But his, we could also talk about his aboveness or his otherness. He is high and holy and exalted over everything. And that should, if creation causes us to awe, if I see things that God created that cause me to go, wow, I look up at the Big Dipper, I look up, uh, I see the planetary systems, I, I realize the Milky Way galaxy is only one of, I think one writer said, billions of galaxies, space is, you know, as Mel's taught us so much, is, is, is largely untapped. And then I think, wait a minute, Above all of that creation, superior to that creation, is the God who loves me and you. As a matter of fact, he says that at the center of the beauty of that creation is me and you. That he made all of this for his glory, yes, but also for our good. That we could enjoy it. That we could be uh, king over his creation. And indeed we are. Do you ever wonder why some animals are fearful of men when they could squash us in a microsecond? But there's even a fear, fearfulness in the animal kingdom of man. Now we do, be, we do have weapons, but even without weapons, animals largely fear man. And so you look at this incredible God and then you realize, you know, he's descending on Mount Sinai. He's giving the law. There's an incredible picture being painted here. He is holy. He is sacred. He is above all things. I want to quickly take you through the book of Exodus and just show you some things about holiness. This is a subject that we don't talk much about in the church anymore, and I think it's unfortunate. And I want to, I want to take you through this, and then I want, to, I want to challenge you about our own personal holiness tonight. But let's start with a little odyssey back in Exodus. I'm going to just kind of rocket fire <laughs> some scriptures, but they'll be kind of compacted together. So Exodus 22:31. Let's start right there. Exodus 22:31. I want to see I want to show you things in the Bible called holy. Things in the Bible called holy. Exodus 22:31. And you shall be holy what does it say in your Bible? Men to me. Therefore you shall not any, eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. Would you look at um, Exodus 19.6? Do we need some air in here? Is it getting warm? I'm getting warm. <laughs> well, I am too. <laughs> Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy what? Nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Look at um, Exodus 16.23. Exodus 16.23. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow, Exodus 16.23, is a Sabbath observance. A what? Holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what, what, you, what you will bake and boil what you will boil and so forth. Would you look at Exodus um, twelve sixteen Exodus twelve sixteen, and on the first day Exodus twelve sixteen, you shall have a holy what's that assembly or convocation, 
and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person and so forth. By the way, in the Ten Commandments, uh, what did God call the Sabbath day? He said, you shall keep the, ho- the Sabbath day what? Holy. holy. What does that mean? <coughs> Set apart the Sabbath day. Why? Because it's not a normal business day for you, Israel. I want you to take Saturday, God said to Israel, and I want you to set it apart. For what purpose? I want you to rest. I want you to worship. I don't want you to treat it like a normal thing because I am setting it apart as a holy day. Would you look at um, Exodus uh, 20, verse 8. We kind of talked about this a moment ago, but he says, remember the Sabbath day, remember it, to keep it holy. Are there ways that um, we take time or days or moments or seasons and keep it holy? Is that even in our vocabulary? We might have some holidays that we say, but I wonder about our society if we really keep those holy. But that's a whole other story. Exodus 28, look at verses 2 through 4. Exodus 28, look at verses 2 through 4. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron. By the way, they didn't have a bunch of holes in them, but actually they were set apart. (laughs) For Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Exodus 28, 3. You shall speak to the skillful persons who I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as a priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, and a robe, and a tunic, and a checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother and his sons, that he may minister as a priest to me. Holy garments, holy days, holy assembly, holy people. What does all of this mean? Holy Sabbaths, holy ointment, holy vessels. I know, there's a joke coming in there. <laughs> We're thinking of the Batman series. <laughs> but anyway, we won't go there. All of this stuff is most holy to the Lord. The altar, the crown that the high priest wore, it is holy. Let me read what one writer says. <coughs> what do we call the Bible, by the way? The holy scriptures. You could reference Romans 1-2, 2 Timothy 3-15. One writer says, when his words are written down, the scriptures are holy. And of course, over and over, the Bible tells us that God himself is holy. The psalmists of the Bible sing of God's holiness. The angels and saints in heaven worship his holiness. In one sense, holy indicates the beyondness and aboveness of God. He is great beyond our comprehension. He is lifted up above all that he made. He exceeds every superlative we can apply to him. Holy captures the complete otherness of God. The Holy God is different from us, a profound mystery, utterly beyond our understanding. What is holiness, he says? Put simply, when holy is applied to created beings, it means set apart for God. Holy places, clothing, water, ointment, instruments, offerings are those that are set apart for God. Holy people belong to God. Holy actions are, are, and words are vehicles through which God reveals himself. 
And when holy is applied to God himself, it sums up all the qualities of his greatness. All his vastness and excellence are encompassed by saying, the Lord is holy. Everything that exists falls into two categories. On the one side, or on the other side, there is everything that is except God. On the other side, there is God himself. There is everything that has been created, and there is the one who has created everything. There is the universe full of age and immensity, power and life, and there is the holy God who has given all of it existence. Exploring the holiness of God, final thought from this writer, of God involves more than serious study. God is not a topic to study. He is a person to meet. The holy God wants to reveal himself to us and he wants to make us holy. That's a great section, isn't it? See, that's what we're talking about tonight. And when God descends on this mountain, the mountain of Sinai represents what? The law and the holiness of God. And you'll notice that when people see it, what do they do? They stand back because the law reveals what? It reveals S-I-N. It reveals our sin. So what does sin do? Sin, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, separates us from God. So the people stood back. They were afraid. They realized if I cross, if I transgress that border, I die. So they stood back and what else did they do? They trembled at the presence of God. Can you imagine the scores of unbelievers on Judgment Day that will stand before this God and attempt to get into heaven without Jesus Christ? Do you think that most unbelievers see God in this awesome picture on Sinai? Because by the way, if you're an unbeliever and you don't know Jesus Christ, that's the God that you will face on Judgment Day. You will face His holy wrath, His holiness, His perfect purity, and His judgment. And you'll die. You won't even be able to stand before Him. You won't have a word to say. You'll, you'll be like the people. Can somebody else talk to Him for us and tell Him, you know? You won't want to face him. You see, the difference between uh, standing before God, uh, before him in, in the sense of the law, and standing before God cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ makes all the difference. I can't even say in the world, in the universe. See, if you, on Judgment Day, try to face God in his Sinai wrath, if I could put it that way, in his perfect judgment as the lawgiver you're going to die you're going to perish but how will you ascend the holy mount remember we've talked about this before because jesus has gone before you because you have a great high priest in heaven who what ever lives to intercede for you as a matter of fact he is the one who makes you holy do you feel holy do you do you look at yourself um and say you know what I'm feeling pretty holy today. <laughs> now, if, even if you said that, you wouldn't be holy, right? You'd be prideful. I want to show you something in uh, the book of Mark. Would you turn to the book of Mark? Now, someone might call you holy if they see a hole in your shirt or something, but let's, let's see. Mark 6. Mark 6. Check this out. Mark 6. Now, before we read this, let me ask you a question. Why would you call somebody holy? You wouldn't? I'm a kid. 
In a sarcastic way? Okay. Mark 6. Holy Joe? Hey, you know, like, like someone gets saved and, and they, uh, someone gets saved and they, they try to witness to the family at Christmas time and they say, hey, be quiet, Holy Joe, it's Christmas. We don't want to hear all that Jesus stuff, you know. But kind of in a mocking way, right? Well, check this out. Perhaps. Mark 6.17, for Herod himself had sent, had John arrested and bound him in prison. Mark 6.17, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, in a politically correct fashion, and I added that, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Direct quote. And Herodias had a grudge against him. She didn't like the fact that he, he called it what it was. And wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and... What does it say in your Bible? Holy. Holy man. And kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. But he used to enjoy listening to him. Interesting. Herod saw John as holy. Now, do we have confirmation that that's the case? Well, Jesus said... Of those born among women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. And we have voices coming. <laughs> are there others that are called holy in the Bible? Are you holy? Hmm. Let's take a look at it. Go to Colossians in the New Testament, chapter 1. Colossians, chapter 1. <laughs> you guys want both Old and New Testament. Here we go. Context. Jesus Christ, His redemption at the cross. Notice it. Colossians 1, 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure, Colossians 1, 19, for all the fullness to dwell in Him, in Jesus. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, you were not very holy. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, what's your Bible say? Holy and blameless and like notice this stacking holy blameless and beyond reproach the new, the NIV calls it unaccusable why am i holy i remember at my ordination service uh, the pastor stood up and he said michael is not particularly holy <laughs> but he is striving for holiness and you know what? I think that sums up where I'm at today. 20 years after becoming a Christian, I can say, I am not particularly holy, but I am striving for holiness. Now, how do I strive for holiness? Do I work harder? Do I try to be a better guy? In some sense, yeah, I do. But you know what? I often fail. And I often look at myself in the mirror and, 
and feel my inadequacy just like I think all of us do. But the point is this. God is the one in the new covenant who makes us holy. What is Sinai all about? What is Sinai all about? Could Sinai save you? Could you come to God through the law? Do you think that this whole picture is much beyond what we think of it? We think of this holy God coming down in this incredible, powerful uh, scene. But this scene is not intended to make you cower in the corner. It's intended for you to see how holy God is so that you would see your need for Jesus. That's what the... That's what the Mount Sinai is all about. Mount Sinai is intended to drive you to Mount Calvary. Remember what we saw in the book of Hebrews, the two mountains? One is the mountain of the law, one is the mountain of mercy. You choose. You choose. Go to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Dr. Martin used to say, <clears throat> there was an old preacher that listened to him quite often, an old Nazarene preacher. And he said, Walt, I love to hear you preach because you crack all the nuts that everybody else runs away from. He says, keep doing it. There's been a couple of people that have told me the same thing. <laughs> he said, keep doing it. Keep cracking those nuts and preaching the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, but if they won't listen to you, make sure you leave them with Moses. Do you see his point? Look, we preach the gospel of grace. We tell people, look at Sinai. And you can join me in wanting to trek that mountain in your own flesh or you can run and get behind Jesus. You choose. I don't know what you're going to do, but on judgment day, when the glorious power of this God is before me, you know where I want to be? Right where Jesus is. That's how I will scale the mount of God. Not on my own, not by pulling myself up by another step and putting my climber's you know, gear on or hoping that somebody else, nobody else is going to pull you up but Jesus Christ. That's what this scene's all about. Look at Revelation 4. After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like emerald in appearance. And I saw around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders or ancients sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne, what was proceeding? flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne four living creatures we remember these from Isaiah 6 and also from Ezekiel full of eyes in front and behind the first creature was like a lion the second creature like a calf the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was uh, like a flying eagle and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, verse 10, will fall down. Remember what I told you? Before Him who sits on the throne, I would assume on their faces they fall down, and will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art Thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou didst create, remember, all things, and because of Thy will they existed and were created. When you get to heaven, guess what you're going to see? All that John can do is describe God in these refracted, brilliant colors similar to gems uh, shining their brilliance. That's what he sees. He sees uh, a figure that's not really human, but, but he has a form, and the form is manifested in these ex- exhilarant, I don't even know how to say it, magnificent colors. And he says that there are people around the throne and what do they do? Day and night, they say, holy, you're holy, Lord. And they fall on their faces. You know, when's the last time you fell on your face before the Lord? When's the last time I did? When's the last time I really understood who it is that I serve? Now, he doesn't want me he wants me to have a reverence for him, but you know, he tells me I can come to him like a son comes to a father. That's what's incredible. I can come to him, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, I can come to the throne of grace. I don't have to be fearful. I can come boldly, but I come with reverence. I don't treat God like he's my next door neighbor or my buddy, but I come to him not only in awe of who he is, but in awe of what he has made me. That he wants me to be with him. That 24-7, he wants me to seek his face. 24-7, he wants to fellowship with me. And I run around this world, you know. I get caught up in all the things, you know, like you guys do. And we struggle and sometimes we lose this picture of God. You know, when Moses saw God up on the mountain and he saw this brilliant flame, we don't even know what it looked like, but a brilliant flame in a bush that was consumed, uh, that was burning but was not consumed. When Moses went to approach it, what did God say? Don't come near here until you take off the shoes because this is holy ground. Why is the ground holy? Only because he's there. That mountain would have been, wouldn't have been different than any other place you would step except God were there. See, this is what it's all about, you guys. In, a, in uh, Exodus 15, the Lord is described this way in the great song. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders, Hannah praise. There is no one, 1 Samuel 2, 2, like the Lord. There is no one holy like the Lord. Revelation 15, verse 4, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name, for thou alone art holy. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 13, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory, the majesty, indeed everything that is in heaven and the earth. Thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over 
over all. In thy hand is power and might. And then he says, Therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. Lift up your eyes, Isaiah says, verse uh, 40, 26, and see who has created these stars. This writer writes, We moderns should be even more impressed than the ancient world. The universe is much grander than Isaiah saw seven centuries before Christ. Consider the sun, for example. It is 1,300,000 times as big as the earth. It is 93 million miles away from us. An airplane traveling 1,000 miles per hour would take more than 10 years to reach the sun. The heat of the sun's interior, approximately 15 million degrees centigrade, could melt 240 million cubic miles of ice per second. And as we look beyond our sun, the scope of God's work is truly staggering. Sirius, the closest star visible from the northern hemisphere, is 40 miles brighter than the sun, or 40 times brighter than the sun, seven times its volume. Polaris, the north star, is a million times the size of our sun. It is four million light years away. One light year is equivalent to over six million miles. As far as Isaiah could tell, if he had taken the trouble to count, there are 4,000 stars visible to the unaided eye. But these are a mere example of the billions and billions of stars through the universe. Our galaxy alone, the Milky Way, is thought to be composed of over 400 billion stars. And there may be 10 billion galaxies. That at least is the extent of the creation, the limits of which we have... Uh, not even begin to discover this writer says and beyond all of that is holy 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 Lord you see why people who are close to God can't help but say that day and night see why this is the God that we're dealing with tonight and I wonder if the world gets it do you? Do you wonder? Do you wonder in all of our hustle and bustle? I mean, what's the application? Okay, preacher, God's holy, all right? He's holy. What does that mean to us? Should it strike some awe in us? Should it cause us to kind of maybe reevaluate a few things? Turn back to Exodus, we'll complete this. I've got to give some credit where credit is due. Um, this doctor wrote a book on holiness I've been reading for the last week or so. And I want to give you some of his final thoughts, although this is just a small portion of his book. He says, God does not change. He was perfect, he is perfect now, and he always will be perfect. In this life, we are always hoping that our ball team will have a perfect season. If you're like me, that's what you hope for. Or that our heroes will not turn out to have clay feet or that our favorite music group will not cause a public scandal. But even the best team is far from perfect. And their best, most exciting season is by definition followed by a poorer one. Everything in this world loses its excellence, its zest. But God is always at his peak, always fantastic, always the cause of astonishment and delight. God is eternal. Now go back. To Exodus 20 as we complete this scene. Now God descends upon the mountain 
Exodus 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. Moses would describe this in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and he says that he had the two tablets. He was walking down the mountain and the mountain was on fire behind him. And you remember that was the scene when Moses took the two tables of the law. He's walking. The fire is flaming behind him and Moses looks down. And what's going on in the camp of Israel? They're dancing naked around a golden calf. I would submit to you that that picture is not too far from the reality of our world. You see, in heaven, the creation crying out that there's a God, Jesus Christ crying out that there's a God, the Holy Scriptures, our conscience, the world that God made, He is in the heavens, the whole earth is what? Full of His glory. And what's man doing down here? Dancing around a golden calf. Saying, this is our God. This is our God. God says, Moses, those people that you brought out of the land <laughs> of Egypt, I'm going to kill them. Now, have you ever had days like that? <laughs> I've said that before. I'm going to kill them. <laughs> I mean, we, we can understand. What does God have to do? He came down on the mountain with thunder and lightning. The people said, you talk to him, Moses. We'll do whatever he says. But then what happened? Uh, it's been 28 days and Moses ain't back yet. Let's make a... Hey, you got any jewelry? Now we laugh. We laugh. But I have to say that... And Paul says this. Look. Christian, you see those people wandering in the wilderness? Be careful. Because their stories were told for your example. See, I do the same thing. God, it's been 28 minutes. Anybody got any jewelry? No. I mean, in one sense, we're not that crass about it. But in another sense, we do do that. God has shown His majestic glory time and again in our lives. He's come down on the mountain, if you will. We've seen it. We said, whoa, whoa, this is an awesome God. Oh, look what He's done, how He answered that prayer, that worship service, that uh, I can't believe how those circumstances worked out. I can't believe how He used me to witness to this person. And then, but it's been a little time. Where is He? Where's Moses? And the people are having a party. What did Moses do? He took the two tables of the law and he threw them down. What does that represent? The fact that they had broken every single one of those commandments while God was trying to get the message to them. But see, remember what Sinai is about? What is Sinai about? It's to show us the utter sinfulness of our condition of sin and to drive us, according to the New Testament, Galatians, to the foot of the cross. You see, those people, they saw God part the Red Sea. They saw this mighty deliverance from Egypt. Miracle after miracle. Moses was up on a fiery mountain getting the law. They could see it. They knew what was going on. And still, in the, in the light of that fire of God, they committed abhorrent sexual sin and bowed down before other gods. And God had warned them, look at this. 
It's hard to understand. The people saw the mountain. They trembled. They stood at a distance, 18. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. There's power. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance, 21, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. It's clear. You heard my voice talking to Moses. What does he say in the next verse? You shall not make other gods besides me. Gods of what? Silver or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. Did they have a warning? Yes. Did they see what was going on? Yes. You shall make an altar of earth for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings. Here's a foretaste of the sacrificial system. Your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make an altar of stone for me, you shall not build it of cut stones, for if you will yield your tool on it, you will profane it. It's holy. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. God has very specific instructions about things that he calls holy. See this picture tonight? This mountain is all about you seeing the holiness, the purity, the power, the justice, the law of God. And it's all about you stepping back from it, looking at it, and then going, wow, that's God. That's a completely different picture than most of the modern movies paint of God. God's usually some guy somewhere, you know, just maybe a little bit beyond us. No, 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 that's not the God of the Bible at all. The God of the Bible is utter holiness and utter power. And yet, he loves you. And he says, you be holy because I'm holy. Do you often wonder to yourself, how in the world can I live up to that call? Peter says in 1 Peter 15, 16, Be holy, 1 Peter 2. You're a holy chosen people, a holy nation, set apart for God, that you might proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What do you do with that? How does that not give you a complex? I don't measure up to that. Then I realize, wait, wait a minute, the Christian life is not about Michael Lance trying harder to scale that mountain. Christian life is about Jesus Christ living through Michael Lance. See, my responsibility is to surrender to this God. And he says, when you do, I'll give you the power, I'll give you my presence, I'll give you the fullness of my spirit, I'll give you all the tools. No, you can't be holy, but I am holy. And I step on ground and it becomes holy. People make garments for my priest and they're holy. People set apart vessels for my temple and they are holy. People walk into the holy place in my temple and when they go beyond that curtain, I call that the holy of holies. See, wherever my presence dwells, that is the holy place. And in the New Testament, 
In 1 Corinthians 6, what does Paul say? Don't you know? God doesn't have a built temple anymore that he's concerned about. You are, what? You're not just the outer part. You are the place where he dwells. Could we biblically say that we, in one sense, are the place where the Holy of Holies is? Yeah. Now, we don't want to go too far on that one. I am the Holy... No, no. no don't, don't do that. You could die. You don't want to do that. But what you need to understand is that the garments, the, the ground, the ointment, the vessels, the scriptures, anything that God breathes into that he sets apart, the nation of Israel, God said, I didn't pick you because you were holier than anybody else. These people are so gone that I'm giving you their land because their sin has come to my nostrils. But don't think it's because you're so good. That's not what this is about. The reason that you're holy men, holy women set apart for me is because I decided to put myself there. Does that make sense to you? So in the New Covenant, the reason that Michael Lance is holy, that Tom Harmon is holy, that Barrett James is holy, that Louise is holy, anybody else, the reason is is because God, the Holy One, did what? Come to live in me through His Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? That's how you can become holy. So you are set apart unto God. He has decided to make you His holy habitation tonight. Sometimes I wonder, <laughs> how does that work, Lord? Sometimes first thing in the morning, I don't feel too holy. Sometimes I look at my own weaknesses and shortcomings and I say, you call me holy? It says, I've already made you holy. Now live like it. Surrender. Realize who I am. And what I do with normal everyday things. Moses wasn't particularly holy. Paul wasn't particularly holy. Peter wasn't particularly holy. But when they hung around me long enough, guess what happened? They started to shine. That's what happens. See, that's the key to our Christian life tonight. The key to our Christian life is not, boy, I wish I was better at this The key to the Christian life is you stay as close as possible to him and then he shines through you. A couple went to France. Husband brought back a a gift for the wife. I think he purchased it secretly. One of those matchboxes, you know, supposed to be a glow-in-the-dark matchbox. So they turned off the lights one night. They had their new little gift from France and they said ah let's watch it glow you know turn off the lights doesn't work this thing's a dud the French ripped us off you know then they saw that there was a French inscription on the box they took it to someone who understood French the little inscription said if you want me to shine in the night you need to keep me in the light that's what holiness is about does that make sense Father, thank you so much that you are the great and awesome God. Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Lord, we haven't even begun to tap into this subject, but tonight I pray that you have been honored that the word of truth, the holy scriptures, have brought out at least a start for us tonight about what holiness is. Maybe a reminder for many of us. You are holy, God. You define what holiness is. You are above. You are exalted. And yet, Lord, the beauty of our relationship with you is that you have decided to come and flood our lives with your holiness. The psalmist said, you've illumined my darkness, Lord. You've taken a man that was lost, self-centered, full of pride, and headed for destruction. And you decided to breathe life into me. You decided to call me a holy one, a saint. That's incredible, Lord. And it's all because of your great love. You are majestic and awesome in power and yet you condescended to become a baby in Bethlehem. When John says, describes you, Jesus, he says, we beheld him, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw the Holy One in human flesh come to live the perfect life, to fulfill the law, to ascend Mount Sinai, to go to Calvary, to die as the perfect Lamb of God, the Holy One, to make sinners like us, those of us who feel wretched and lost so many times in our life, to make us holy, to set us apart for glory. And we have a down payment of that, Lord, tonight, your Holy Spirit. And one day we'll be in the holy presence of our God forever. I'm sure joining with the angels and the saints throughout the eons of time singing holy, holy, holy. Lord, tonight we desire to be practically what you call us positionally. Forgive us for the many times that we've lost focus on who you are. Forgive us for the many times that we've failed to yield to your power. We've tried to do it in the flesh. We've gone back to the old broken cisterns that can never hold water. Lord, fill us tonight. Cleanse us of our backslidings. Heal us of our pride. Show us a vision of your glory afresh so that we might say, holy is the Lord. So that we might be filled with your light and love and truth. So that we might forsake the gods of gold and silver, the things that so easily entangle us, that we might stay as close to you as possible, Lord, that we might shine in a crooked, dark, and perverse generation, that we might shine as lights for you until you come, Lord. We just want to say we worship and love you in Jesus' name.